Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Come on. Man, those are some impressive statistics, and it is so cool to celebrate all that God has done in our church over the last couple of years. It's amazing to think that all that has happened in just two years, isn't it? Like, I, I, I know that uh, I feel like humble bragging, but like, it's just, I've watched the journey of a lot of churches, and what God is doing in this season and in this community is unique, and we need to remember that. It's so, 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 so good. Well, hey, uh, I'm going to bring a birthday sermon to you today, an anniversary sermon to you today. And uh, I've titled this chat, if you'd like to take notes, Stay in the City. Stay in the City. And this is something that God's been speaking to me about quite a bit over the last couple of weeks and something that I'm excited to share because I think it's going to help some people out. There's a lot of questions about the future and what's happening in San Francisco right now. And I really believe that this is one of those rhema words, something from God that he wants to speak into our church community. Um, I love anniversaries. I love celebrating anniversaries. How about you? You guys like to celebrate your anniversary? For those of you that are single and you don't get an opportunity, that it's going to be great one day. Just, just wait. But I, I love celebrating anniversaries. Robin and I have been married for 16 years. And every, thank you. And every single, it's really all her. She stayed with me. It's great. Uh, but for every year, we try to do something special. We get away or we go to dinner somewhere and we try to celebrate uh, what, what, you know, what we've experienced over those 16 years. And we've been through some incredible times together. We got you know, married very young. We met each other very young. Uh, I had like a pubescent wannabe mustache and she had like Coke bottle bangs and the big old ghetto earrings. And I was like, girl. And she's like, boy, it was great. Uh, but but it's, it's amazing to see what God has done in our lives over the last 16 years. And anniversaries are that opportunity where you get to kind of stop and think for a moment, post, you know, the obligatory thing on Instagram so everyone gets jealous of your love. And, and, and just remember, like, man, we've been through some stuff, and God's been faithful. God's been so good to us as a married couple. And I want to do that today, if I could, as a church. I want to remember all that God has done. But I also want to take a moment to maybe come back to center and remind us of why we're here Remember what we exist for. Like, if, as you look at those statistics, it is incredible to see what God has done over the last 24 months, especially when you consider that six of those months have been in the midst of COVID, that people were still getting saved and still getting baptized. Generosity was still increasing. We were still giving out so much. So, I mean, it's just incredible to see what God has done. And it's important that we come back and we remember what he's done. I like to do this every single Monday. Well, when we used to have church on Sundays, but uh, like when we would get done on Sundays and then on Mondays, I would, I would spend all of my time praying, just thanking God for what he did in our community. I wouldn't ask for anything. I would just thank him. I'd stop the pace of life and just kind of sit back and go, you've done so many good things in our church. No other agenda other than to thank him. I think that is so important because when we thank God, not only do we remember his faithfulness in the past, not only do we recall what he's done, but it actually begins to stir our faith for the future. We go, okay, if God did that, man, he's got so much more than he, that he can do. And when I consider all that's happened, when I look at that video, I go, man, God has been so faithful, but there is so much more that he wants to do in our community. It stirs my faith for the future. The Bible calls it an Ebenezer. And that word Ebenezer in the Hebrew, it means a cartoon duck that swims through mountains of cat. No, I'm sorry, that's not what it means. No, <laughs> some of you got that, okay. The rest of you, you'll get it later. It's great, Scrooge, if you need a little help. Uh, but, but that word in the Hebrew, Ebenezer, it means a stone of help. And often when God brought his people 
through a, a difficult season or he delivered them from an enemy or he gave them a great victory, he would have them set up an Ebenezer, an altar, a stone of remembrance so that every time they looked back on that stone, every time the future generations looked back on this altar that they had set up, it would be a reminder of God's faithfulness in the past and they would say, you know what, if God did that, then I have nothing to worry about in the future. If he was faithful to bring us through the Red Sea, if he was faithful to deliver us from our enemies, then he will be faithful to continue to bring victory in every area of our lives from this point forward. It was a moment to look back and remember. And so when we watch that video, it's, it's not an opportunity to just brag and digitally pat ourselves on the back and go, hey, we've done some great stuff. It's a stone. It's an Ebenezer. It's a moment to go, wow, God, you are so good. And if you've been faithful then, you will continue to be faithful in our future. I think that is such an important thing to recall right now. As the future is kind of unknown and there's a lot of things out there that look a little sketchy, hey, he's been faithful in the past. And if he was faithful in the past, he's gonna be faithful in the future. Amen? Come on, amen? Now, not only is it important to remember what's happened in the past, but I think it is important occasionally, whether it's your marriage, your business, whatever, to, to come back to center and go, okay, wait a minute, hold on. why are we here again? What's our, what's our why? What's our purpose? What's our intention? Especially over the last six months as some of that, especially for churches, has gotten a little, bit, a, little, a little bit foggy. Like sometimes it's important to come back around the vision and go, why are we here? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of loss over the last six months. A lot of things that people have lost. People have lost jobs. People have lost income. People have lost retirement as a result of the economy. People have lost some time not just time that their businesses and their lives have been sheltered, but time that they're gonna have to invest to rebuild it back up. People have lost friends and family members, some to sickness. People have lost relationships as a result of social and political pressures. People have lost hope. This is getting depressing, isn't it? There's been a lot of loss over the last six months. But I think one of the greatest losses of this last six months has been the loss of vision. Like a lot of people have, have lost sight of their why. They've lost sight of their purpose, the call, the plan, the purpose of God. It's gotten a little bit foggy as a result of just trying to, to deal with the present. When you are so focused on what's happening in the present, it seems impossible to think beyond today, doesn't it? One of my favorite verses in the book of Proverbs, I read the Proverbs every single day, is Proverbs chapter 28, verse 19, and it speaks about vision. And it says, where there is no vision, that the people cast off restraint. One translation says, where there is no vision, the people run wild. I just love that mental picture, like, ah! You know, just freaking out and running everywhere. Like, where there is no vision, people don't restrain themselves. They just do whatever they want to do. And that word, uh, without restraint, in the Hebrew is the word para, para. Roll your R with me, para. Say it with me, yeah, you guys sound great. And, and, and that, that word means unbridled. It's a picture of a bridled, or excuse me, an unbridled horse. And I, I have kind of a makeshift bridle here. I had my mom pick up a horse bridle for me today. But, thanks mom, by the way, because I don't own a horse, so I don't own a bridle. But uh, if you can picture a horse and, and this bit inside of its mouth, I won't put it on. Well, man, I'll put it on, hold on. Yeah, just like that. But if a horse doesn't have one of these in its mouth, it can run amok, it can go crazy, it can run and do whatever it wants to do. 
But the second uh, the horse gets this bit inside of its mouth, suddenly it remains focused, it's controlled, it has intention. Think about the wildest racehorse out there you can find. If you can tame it and get one of these in its mouth, you can control the direction of that horse. And Solomon says that vision is like one of these. Vision is like a bridle, it's like a bit. It actually has the ability to keep you on course, to keep you focused, to keep you living with intention. Without it, you're gonna run crazy and you're gonna do whatever you wanna do. But with vision, you'll live with restraint. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, I have two daughters and both of those girls handle money completely differently. Uh, one of them is a saver and the other one is a spender. Every family has one of each. Every family has a saver. Every fam- who's, who's the saver in your family? Come on. And who's the spender? <laughs> well, we have some problems in the room today, all right? There's a lot of spenders here. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that one of my daughters falls into the category of the saver, the other one the spender. Ellie, my oldest, who is nine, going on 10, uh, well, actually going on 17, but uh, she is the saver of the two of them. And I will not tell you how much money she has saved because it would make her the target of robbery and it would probably put many of you in your 20s and 30s to shame. So I won't share that number with you. But her younger sister, Livy, who is seven, she is the spender. And I won't say how much money Livy has either because it will embarrass her in comparison to her sister. But we got the saver and we've got the spender. And here's the deal. Both of them have had equal access to money. They've had equal access to the gifts that come their way when people hand them money. Whether it's, uh, you know, the holidays, you got Christmas, you got birthdays, because she has very generous uh, grandparents. Easter, they get money. Uh, because we planted a church in the sunset, Chinese New Year, we get money. Like, like they have an odd opportunity to collect some cash. But the way they handle that money is completely different. When Ellie receives her money, she immediately goes to this envelope where she's storing her buckets of cash, and she counts everything And then after she counts it and adds her new money, she just kind of sits back for a moment and smiles in pride like, ah, yeah. And then she tithes because she's she's a generous girl. Uh, Livy, on the other hand, Livy immediately begins to daydream about all of the things that she can purchase now that she has this, this money burning a hole in her pocket. She immediately starts thinking, oh, I could buy this Barbie or I could buy this Shopkin or can I get on Amazon and just start searching for some things that I can buy? I don't know if I need it, but if I see it, I'll know that I need it, you know, right there If she goes to Target with mom, like anything shiny, glittery, rainbow colored, or resembling a unicorn, like same thing. Like I'm gonna buy that with my money. That's exactly what she does every single time. One saves and one spends. Now the reason that Ellie is a saver, no offense to her younger sister, is because Ellie has some vision. She has some vision for her finances. She, she, She doesn't just hold on to it because she's greedy. She actually intentionally holds on to it because she's got a plan for it in the future. Five years ago or so, my, uh, my daughter decided that she wanted to drive a Tesla when she turned 16 years old. Now, you might think that that is an odd request of someone her age, but we talked about them a lot and how much I wanted one and I don't have one. She's like, well, you don't have one, but I'm gonna have one. And so she started saving for a Tesla from a very young age. And every time she puts money inside of this little envelope, she's like, this is my Tesla fund. And I, like an idiot, made a plan with my, my girls when they were younger. I said, listen, here's how your car purchase is gonna work. You save up as much as you can and whatever you save up, I'll bring the same amount of money to the table and then we can buy the car together. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe a Prius or something like that, but this one is actually gonna hold me to account. I'm actually gonna get on the hook for a Tesla, I think, because of the way that she saves. Livy might get a scooter or something like that, but, <laughs> but, 
But Ellie's going Ellie's to make me broke. It's going to be great. She has a vision for her money. And it's, so when she goes to the store and she sees things that she wants, when she sees the, you know, the Barbie that she wants or the game that she wants or she sees the new bike that she wants, she has this moment and she goes, do I want this now or am I going to restrain myself so that I can lay hold of what I want in the future? She has a vision and since she has a vision, she restrains herself. She also is an expert negotiator and seems to talk all of us into doing things for her like a terrorist would. And so we all buy what she wants anyway. But nonetheless, she has a vision for her finances. She sees herself driving that Tesla or that Tesla driving her. And as a result of that, it causes her to live a certain way today. Vision restrains her. And this works in any area of life. Anything you've got vision for becomes like a bit in your mouth that keeps you heading in the right direction. When you have a vision for your health, you have a bit that causes you to work out, exercise, and diet a certain way. When you have a vision for your marriage as you're moving towards it as a dating couple, this bit will keep you sexually pure because you understand that the way you do this season is going to affect your next season. When you have a a plan for your children's future, you'll have a bit in your mouth, a bit in your spirit that will talk about how you discipline them and who you let them hang out with and and what kind of of things you're gonna let them watch on television and all all the things that, that go into making our children who they become. When you have a vision for your finances, there's a bit that keeps you from spending a certain way and causes you to save and even give because you understand that God is ultimately in charge of your finances. And as you give, you're entrusting to him something that you cannot produce on your own. Vision is like a bit. It it, it causes restraint to take place in a good way in our lives so that we can lay hold of what he has for our future. But without the bit, without vision, you'll just run amok. You'll live recklessly. Without vision, you'll eat what you want, you'll sleep with who you want, you'll spend your money how you want, you'll let your kids do whatever they want because you have no vision. Now, this would be an appropriate place to ask the obvious and uncomfortable question. If that's how vision works, if a lack of vision causes us to live without restraint, let me ask you today, how's your vision doing? Has your vision suffered over the last six months? Are are there things in your life that you've lost vision for? Things in your life that you used to be passionately pursuing? Things in your life that you used to be focused on and you lived with intention, but now you find yourself living without restraint because things have gotten a little bit cloudy. The nature of our world has gotten your eyes focused on some things that are now more of an immediate problem, an immediate situation, and so you're no longer looking into what God has for your future. Have you lost some vision? Maybe you would say, ah, you know, well, it's a discipline issue. I wish I just had more discipline. Well, maybe it's not a discipline problem. Maybe it's a vision problem, because discipline comes as a byproduct of just having some vision. And if you're there today, If you find yourself in a place where you're lacking vision, you're lacking restraint, things have gotten a little bit cloudy as a result of the last six months, I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to stir up some vision in you again. I believe he wants to fan into flame those gifts, those desires, those dreams, those passions, the things that he's placed on your heart. I believe he wants to stir those things up again. 
not just for you individually, but also for our community. I believe that now is perhaps the best time, better than any other time, to remind ourselves again of the vision of this house. Why has God put us here for such a time as this? At the corner of 19th and Sloat on the west side of San Francisco in the middle of chaos, there must be a reason he put us here. There must be a vision and some intention behind what he's done. Maybe it's time to wipe the, the, the boogers out of our eyes in the spirit and focus in again on what he's called us to do as a community. Why are we here? And to put it simply, you've heard us say this over and over and over again, here is the the bite-sized sentence, this is our vision. The Father's house exists so that people will discover life in Jesus. That is why we're on this planet. That's why we're in this part of the city because there are some people that need to discover life in Jesus. They've looked everywhere else and all they've found is death. Is death. But we know that the gospel, that the good news about Jesus will bring life to their life. And so we exist the reason we're making phone calls, the reason that we're for the one, the reason that we're sending out text messages, the reason that we serve our community on Thursdays, we hand out groceries, and the reason we do what we do over and over and over again is because we exist to see people discover life in Jesus. It's that simple. But the more exhaustive version of that vision, the longer version, if you will, is Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62 is, is why we're here. Isaiah 62 is our compass. It's our promise. It's, it's the scripture we look to to make decisions. If you're new to our community and you've never heard, of us, heard us talk about this before, uh, I'll tell the story just again real quickly like your mom tells you about how you were born every single year. My mom does that to me every year, but just to remind us what God has spoken to us and what he's promised to us as a community. About a year before the church started, I was reading through the Bible and my Bible reading plan had me on Isaiah 62 for the day. And as I read through Isaiah 62, which is God's promise to an exiled people that were on their way back to their city, it's like the words popped off the page and they began to pierce my heart and God said, this is what I wanna do in San Francisco. This is why I'm calling you guys to the city. This is why I'm planting you there because this is the promise that I am making to San Francisco in these days. And if you've never read that before, you've never heard us preach on it before, let me just read you a little snapshot, some bite-sized pieces from Isaiah 62, just so that it'll stir your faith for what God wants to do in and through our church in this city. Isaiah 62, one, because I love Zion, I will not keep still. Because my heart yearns for San Francisco. By the way, I crossed out Jerusalem in my Bible and put San Francisco. Not sure if God's cool with that, but we'll sort that one out in heaven. Um, I cannot remain silent. I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. The nations will see your righteousness. World leaders will be blinded by your glory and you will be given a new name by the Lord's own mouth. The Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see, a splendid crown in the hand of God. Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate place. Your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God for the Lord delights in you and he will claim you as his bride. Come on, that is the promise that God has made to our city. It goes on to talk more in, in the future verses, but this is such, a, such an important scripture to our family here. This, this is what God has promised to us. It's why we've printed it on our merchandise. It's why we talk about it. It's why we've written songs about it because th this is the promise he's made to our community. But, but there's a, a verse in this scripture that I think the Holy Spirit wants to remind us of today. A verse that is so important as it pertains to our, our future. 
and it's verse five. And it's a verse that might call some of you out right now based on what you're considering. But I think this is the word of the Lord for you today. So please tune your spirit in and listen to what the Lord's saying. Not a man on the stage, but what the Lord is speaking to you today. Isaiah 62, verse five. It says this. Your children will commit themselves to you, O San Francisco, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. Your children will commit themselves to you, O city of San Francisco, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. What interesting language, right? Just as a young man commits himself to his bride. I know that some of you wouldn't consider yourself young. Some of you wouldn't consider yourself a man. Some of you wouldn't consider yourself married. I'd be weird if you considered yourself married and you weren't married, but I digress. But whether you're young man married or not, I think we all can understand what Isaiah is saying here. Think about how a young man commits himself to his bride. When a young man stands there at the altar and he's just enthralled with the woman that is standing before him, there's not a, an ounce of doubt in his mind that this thing is the most important thing on planet Earth. He is locked in. He is focused. He's committed. He's devoted. He even makes some statements about it, doesn't he? He says, hey, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, forsaking all others, I commit myself to you for the rest of my days until death do us part. That's what the heart of a young man is feeling and saying in that moment as he stares at his bride, he is committed, he is fiercely devoted. And Isaiah says that there will be a people that will commit themselves not to a woman, not to a union, but a people that will commit themselves to a city in the same way that a young man commits himself to a bride. That they will be fiercely devoted to the well-being of that city. They will be fiercely devoted to the beauty and the restoration of that city. In the same way that a young man makes those vows, they would say, you know what? Whether the city is rich or it's poor, whether the city is sick or it's healthy, whether the city is beautiful or it's a little bit ratchet and it needs some Botox, I am still gonna commit myself to this place because I know that there are some things that God has promised to come to pass and I have not yet seen them. So until I see them, I'm committing myself to stay planted to this place so that it can become what God has promised it will become. I am remaining devoted to this city. Listen, I believe that just as the other verses in that scripture have been promised to our church, that that is a promise that's been made to our church. That there are some people that God is calling together in community that won't just be committed to a Sunday morning gathering and they won't be just be committed to a group and they won't be just committed to the good times and we can hang out on the porch and drink coffee and, and eat donuts, but they will be fiercely committed regardless of what's happening in this city to see it become what Jesus has promised it would become through Isaiah 62. That they would plant their feet down, they would plant their roots down deep and they would say, I am committed to seeing this city become what God wants it to become. I believe that is a part of the promise being made to our house. But like no other time, that promise is being challenged. Like no other time, people are just, just leaving this city. It's always been transient, but like never before, people are leaving in droves. Whether it's the working from home climate, the moral disintegration, 
the cost of living, the inconvenience, whatever it is, there's a lot of people asking themselves right now, is this really the place that I wanna be? Is this really the city that I wanna, I wanna stay in? And listen, this is not a reactionary message. I'm not saying this because there's a bunch of people in our church that are leaving and I'm like, all right guys, please just stay. Like, hunker down, I'm gonna miss you. I need people around. That's not it at all. In fact, God's done some pretty miraculous things in our church and despite what's happened, we've continued to grow and God's doing great stuff. So this is not a reaction. I'm just articulating what many people are feeling right now, giving voice to this, this thought, this idea. Hey, is there anything really keeping me here right now? And if that question has crossed your mind, or maybe it's begun to navigate your decisions, allow me to be the first, maybe the only voice to say, yes, there is something keeping you here right now. Because you did not come here to find the best cost of living and the best weather and the best food and the best, you know, whatever. No, the reason you were placed here for such a time of this, as this is because there's an Isaiah 62 promise that still has not yet come to pass. God still has more he wants to do. There are many sons and daughters that have not yet been gathered back into the fold. And we are here in this season right now so that we can be a part of a historic move of God in San Francisco that requires some people saying, I'm going to commit myself to this city just as a young man commits himself to the bride. I'm here to stir up some vision in you again. I'm here to remind you today why you are here. Well, no, that's why your church is here. Hey, last time I checked, this is the ecclesia. We are one body. We are one voice. We are one breath. And if that's why God has called us here and you're a part of this family, that's why God has called you here. So you don't get to disqualify yourself from the collective vision. We are here to see people discover life in Jesus. That is why we are in this city. If we don't remember that, we will cast off restraint. We will throw away the bit and we'll start finding cheaper housing and better school systems and less restrictive mayors and all the stuff that people are looking for right now. But if we remember why we're here, if we remember what God has in his heart for this city, then we will put our roots down deep and we will say, I will not be moved until I see what God has promised come to pass for San Francisco. When Solomon said in, in Proverbs chapter 28 that without vision, people cast off restraint, he wasn't just saying that like without vision, people will avoid some bad things. He was also saying that when you do have vision, you'll remain committed to the good things. You will continue to say yes over and over and over again. If you're taking notes, write this down. This, this is what I believe that Solomon's scripture could be converted to. Vision doesn't just cause us to resist, it compels us to commit. It doesn't just say, okay, I'm gonna resist the bad stuff. No, I'm gonna to commit to the good things. I'm gonna to commit to this city until I see it become what God has promised it will become. And let me prove that to you through scripture because otherwise I'm just trying to twist your arm and rope you into staying if you're thinking about leaving. But let me show you a story in, in scripture that articulates this so well. Acts chapter 18. The apostle Paul is uh, going throughout the known world and he's preaching the gospel and starting churches. At this point, he is on his second of three missionary journeys, and uh, he's been to a few different cities, uh, Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, um, Antioch, uh, not the one off of Highway 4, the, uh, the one in modern-day Turkey. Like, he's been planting churches. That was such a dumb joke. That was a dad joke. <laughs> he's planting churches everywhere. And he's now leaving Athens in Acts chapter 18, and he's on his way in to Corinth. Now, Corinth is a pretty interesting city. It has a, it has a bit of a, a checkered past. Corinth at this time, it's a, it's, a, it's a port city, it's in a bay, 
and it's very transient in nature. People come in and out of Corinth to do business, and once they finish up their business, they get back on their boats and they head off, but it's one of those cities where people are constantly passing through. But not only that, Corinth had a bit of a, an interesting reputation. All the people who checked into Corinth knew that this was a party city. It's like Chico, but you know, different. <laughs> this is the place you went to, to, to kind of indulge in all those things that maybe you were a little bit embarrassed about. In fact, it was very widely known that Corinth was the place where you could indulge in sexual immorality like no other place around there. Here's what some historians wrote. Uh, one said, in classical Greek, to act like a Corinthian meant to practice fornication and a Corinthian companion meant a prostitute. This sexual immorality was permitted under the widely popular worship of Aphrodite, also known as Venus, the goddess of fertility and sexuality. William Barclay, the, another theologian and historian, goes on to say, uh, dominating Corinth stood the hill of the Acropolis. The hill was not only a fortress, it was the temple of Aphrodite. In its great days, the temple had 1,000 priestesses of Aphrodite who were sacred prostitutes and who at evening came down to the city streets to play their trade. It was, it was a pretty messed up city. But let's, let's take all that and put it together and, and, and here's what you've got. You've got a large port city that's by the bay where people are constantly coming and going and the moral climate is such that sexual immorality and all kinds of sin are not just tolerated and accepted, but they're celebrated. Does that sound like a city that anybody else knows of? <laughs> just, just food for thought. And it's into this climate that the Apostle Paul says, I'm gonna plant a church. God wants to be in this city. He's not scared of the sin. He's not rejecting them and saying, hey, you do whatever you want. I'm gonna move on to the easier city. No, in the middle of this place, God's saying, I want to build my church. So the Apostle Paul comes in, he says, I know it's dark, but the light works best in darkness. I'm gonna preach the gospel. Paul also was a strategist and he understood that in a port city, if you could preach the gospel in such a way that the church grew and many came to know Jesus, you wouldn't just affect your local city, but you could affect the far reaches of the earth through one locale. Because as people came into that city, they encountered Jesus. As they left, they were gonna take that encounter to every city that they ended up in. So God was like, okay, here's a city I can do some stuff with, not just here, but even beyond this place. So Paul comes in and as he's done in every other city, he begins to confidently preach the gospel. But he's met with perhaps a different response than he experienced in some of the other cities. Look what it says in Acts chapter 18, verse four. So each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. After Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all of his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and resisted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and he said, your blood is on your own heads, I'm innocent. From now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. And then he left and he went to the home of Titius Justice, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. So here's, here's what's happening. Paul comes in, he boldly begins to preach. People resist, they oppose. Paul says, fine. You don't wanna hear what I have to say? You don't wanna give me permission to meet in my church building? <laughs> you, you don't wanna offer your, your acceptance to this gospel that I'm peddling right now? That's fine. Your blood is on your own hands. And he pulls kind of a toddler move. He just kind of has a temper tantrum. He's like, Paul out. You know, he just leaves. He just bounces. He's like, fine. You don't want to hear what I have to say. You want to live with all these restrictions. I'm sick and tired of homeschooling my kids in an 800 square foot home with no backyard. Our pets' heads are falling off. I'm out. Like he bounces. 
He does one of those, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Only his ball was the gospel. And it was the life that so many people desperately needed in that city. All because it wasn't as easy as he thought it should be. And look what Jesus says to Paul when he's about to leave this city and he's throwing his little temper tantrum next to the synagogue, getting ready to move on. Acts chapter 19, verse nine. After he throws a fit and vows to leave, it says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and he told him, don't be afraid, speak out. Don't be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you and harm you. Ready for this? For many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed. So Paul stayed. So Paul stayed in the city. He stayed in the city. Jesus said, Paul, I know you're discouraged. I know things haven't been going the way that you planned. I know this church planning endeavor has brought a little more complication. But listen, I'm not done with this city yet. There's more I want to do here. There are many people in this city that belong to me. And so you cannot leave yet. I am not done with you. I need you to stay. I need you to plant. I need you to remain. Because there's a lot of people's lives that are hanging in the balance. There's a lot of people who will never come to know me unless you stay and you commit yourself to this city. I've called you here to be the mouthpiece, to don't be afraid, speak out, declare the gospel. That is why you're here. Romans chapter 10, verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. But how will they be able to confess unless they believe? And how will they believe unless someone tells them? And how will someone tell them unless that person is sent? So Paul, I have sent you to this city to declare the goodness of God so that the many who I already know will say yes, have an opportunity to hear of my love and be added to the family. So you got to stay in the city and don't be afraid. No one's going to hurt you. You're not going to die. I'm going to take care of all your needs. Just stay. Church, I believe that that is the word of the Lord for year three at the father's house. I believe this is what God is saying to us right now. Stay in the city. Commit yourself to this city as a young man commits himself to his bride. There are many more that God has already spoken for in this city. Many more that are gonna come to the Lord. There's some marriages that haven't been restored yet. There's some prodigal sons and daughters that aren't back in the house yet. There's some hope that hasn't been restored yet. There's some dreams that haven't come to pass yet. There's some addicts that need some freedom. There's some stuff that God still hasn't done, but it requires a people to say, I will commit myself. I will say yes to the call to be in this place, to declare the goodness of God, to serve this city and to do my part until those people come back into the house. Hey, if we're gonna be for the one, sometimes the simple way to be for the one is to say, I'm planting myself in this city until every lost one is coming back into the house. Stay in the city, for many in this city belong to me. If the vision has grown dim, if it's become unclear, let, let, me, let me focus it right back. Let me make this crystal clear. The same thing that Jesus said to Paul, he's saying to us right now. There are many in this city that belong to me, so commit yourself again. 
I love the way that the theologian N.T. Wright says it. I'll invite the band to come as I, as I read this. This will be the concluding statement. As he concludes his commentary, here's what he says. On behalf of Jesus, you see, he writes, evangelism is only just beginning here. Settle down and get on with it. I am at work here. Just trust me and stick it out. Oh, come on. I think that's what Jesus is saying to us today. Evangelism is only beginning in San Francisco. Don't get restless. Settle down. Get on with it. I'm at work here. There's so much that I'm doing. If you just open your eyes and see it, just trust me and stick it out. Don't be afraid. Nothing's going to harm you. No one's going to take you out. If God's called you here, he'll provide the way for you to stay here. Just remember, there's many in this city that are relying group of people to say, I'm, I'm planting myself. Like a young man commits himself to his bride, I'm committing myself to this city until I see God's promises come to pass. Let me pray for us as we conclude today. Jesus, I, I thank you for those that have come through our doors over the last two years or come in by way of the church at home and different avenues that have been added to the family. God, I thank you that this is not something that is a pop-up that'll be gone tomorrow or something that you called for a temporary season, but God, you are building your kingdom and it will be established in permanence in San Francisco. And right now I pray over every person that is listening, that is watching, that is maybe just considered like, ah, you know, but it's cheaper out there and the yard's bigger, the, the weather's nicer, I can work remotely. As they're making the pros and cons, I pray right now that there would be a check in their spirit. If you've called them to be here, that you would remind them of the vision. That there are still people in this city that need to be saved. There's still a job to be done here. And that you would make it abundantly clear if they're to stay. On behalf of me and my house and so many of our team, I just declare, Jesus, we're committing ourselves again to this city like a young man commits himself to his bride. We're not going anywhere. Devil, you can do whatever you wanna to do to try to push out the church in this season, but we are planting our feet. We are setting our roots down deep and we will not be moved until we see what God has promised come to pass over this city. May that steadfastness, may that resolve be in many hearts today. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. With heads bowed in here today and as you're, praying there in your living room or wherever you're praying from, I just want to take an opportunity and make, make a space for people who would say, I, I'm actually the one that belongs to the Lord, but I haven't come home yet. I'm the one that you're here for. I'm the one that you've been praying for. I'll make an opportunity for you to say yes to Jesus. As I said a moment ago, Romans chapter 10, verse nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is that simple. I want to pray a very simple prayer with you. And if you want to pray this in your heart, you can do that right now. And I'll give you some steps in just a moment to take from there. But this moment's between you and Jesus. Just say, Jesus, today I give you my heart. I thank you for giving your life for mine. I trust you. And today I choose to follow you. Help me to be your disciple, to walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, can we just give it up in this room for all those that are making those decisions at home? I love it. No greater present for us than seeing sons and daughters coming home to the King today. 
Um, listen, if you, if you prayed that prayer, we wanna help you take your next steps. We're so passionate about that, that around here. The worst thing you could do is say a prayer and then just move on with life and pretend like nothing happened. Now we wanna make sure that you start this journey strong. So if you can click the button that's popping up in the live stream right now, it says raise my hand, or you can click at the link below on YouTube, it says connect. Give us a little information about yourself. We wanna get a Bible to you this week. I'll tell you about something called First 40, which is a 40 day journey that we take with you to teach you how to pray and read the Bible and get in community and all the basics of faith. And we wanna tell you about your next step, which is to be water baptized. As you saw, 70 people have already made that decision in the last two years. I'm believing for 70 more in the next two weeks. I don't know, but <laughs> it, that is your very next step. Uh, but whatever it looks like for you, click that button in and we'll reach out to you this week. For the rest of you guys, it is almost two o'clock. We will see you at Stern Grove as we party together and celebrate all God has done over the last two years. Have an amazing Sunday and we'll see you soon. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.